Welcome to Tea with Culture. My name is Hin Mizena. For this episode, I invited the film critic A.S. Hamra, also known as Scott, to join me for a conversation about his book, The Earth Dies Streaming, published by N Plus One Books. It's a collection of thoughtful and insightful film writing from 2002 to 2018. A.S. Hamra has a unique voice in the world of film criticism. He's averse to PR and film criticism bound by studio release schedules. In the opening chapter titled, Remember Me on This Computer, he states, I would try to never include anything in my writing that could be extracted and used for publicity. The book is sharp and at times very funny, and it is one of my favorite discoveries in this very difficult year. Since March, there's been a lot of writing about the death of cinema and announcements of new film releases going straight to streaming channels. So the title of the book felt even more pertinent. We start our conversation about the state of film writing and criticism and the debates surrounding the current state of film releases, streaming and movie theaters. Just past the 40th minute, we dive deep into the book and talk about some of the sections that stood out for me. I've added all the relevant links and information in the show notes. Long-form writing deserves a long-form discussion, so I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did when I recorded it. Personally, it was a much-needed discussion and an apt episode to end our 2020 season. Please stay tuned for new episodes in the new year, and I hope you have a safe and healthy 2021. Hi, Scott. Thank you for joining me on uh, this episode of Tea with Culture. And I just want to say, you know, I want to start off by kind of talking about my introduction to your book and how I got to know about it. I first got to know about your book because Glenn Kenny tweeted it, and he's a film writer I, I like, and he's kind of the first film writer who really uh, created an interest in me in, in film writing when he uh, during his days at Premiere magazine. So when he tweeted about this book, I'm like, oh, you know, why? Because I, you know, I like his thinking and his taste. So I looked up the book and the title, The Earth Dice Streaming, which just feels like it could have been an essay you wrote, you know, this month or last month because streaming and we can, we'll get into it in, in a short while. But it was just great to be able to read reviews in a book versus on the computer. And, and, and especially, like I said, it was good company in the summer, especially when the cinemas were closed for a bit over here in Dubai. And just kind of this uh, long form reading and even the short capsule reviews and, and that captures you know, your writings between 2002 and 2018. And I'm sorry that I didn't really follow your writing from early 2000s, but like, it was really, really great. And I, and all along I kept thinking, I hope there's an opportunity to have a conversation with you. So I'm glad here we are, you know, so. Uh, well, so thank you for having me. Yeah, no, and so how, I mean, I know, and with this book, you talk about kind of your frustration with film criticism and you have your style of writing and, and I think which also resonated. So it's not just about the movies, right? You link it to politics, you link it to everyday life, to social, cultural situations. And, and I think that's what maybe I also related to it. So it's not just about I'm reading about a movie only. I'm reading about maybe your personality or your interest or or kind of your thoughts on, like I said, politics and culture, et cetera. So I, th I thought that was, uh, that's what really resonated with me the most, uh, you know, uh, with the book. So I'm, I'm curious, like how you were, I feel, were you lucky that you were able to write the way you want to write? Well, you've been writing for? I, first of all, I'm glad to know that you learned about my book through Glenn Kenny. Uh, Glenn is Glenn lives in the next neighborhood over from me. That's nice to know. And um, 
you know, I, I don't know if I was lucky actually at all. I was lucky in the sense that I was able to write what I wanted to write. I started writing in the nineties and zines, which are magazines that are published independently in small numbers and kind of sold by the people that make them. And then I wrote online for a website called suck.com. And those experiences were very different from the kinds of experiences that a lot of other writers had uh, in my generation who just wanted to write for the New York Times or something like, like Glenn does. Um, and, you know, I was able to maintain my own voice, my own character, my own personality, as you said and not have to write for the entertainment weeklies of the world. I was never asked to do that in any case. Uh, they didn't want me in any of those kinds of places. So, you know, when I started, when I became the film critic for N Plus One, and now I'm the film critic for The Baffler, those are the kinds of publications that allow me to do things the way that I want to do them, that I think is right, that I think is best. And they don't have you know, they don't have word counts. They're not trying to fit me into a space that's the same in every issue. And this has allowed me to write the way I want to write without compromise. So, you know, that's been very good for me. And that's why my book got published by N plus one books, their books division. And, uh, you know, that book is exactly how I wanted it to be. It's not, again, it's not, it's not, made by the standards or the strictures of the publishing industry. And I keep wondering, like, why aren't there more bafflers and N plus one, you know, around the world, right? Because we, we certainly don't have any uh, publications that think about, uh, you know, just culture writing in general. So forget just not just film, just, you know, culture and arts and everything it uh, includes. And, and everything is just very much reliant on press releases, you know, just like a re repetition of what was included in the press release. Everything's very positive, right. everything's great. And, you know, and I'm like, we just, we like, at least this, in my part of the world, we lack that, which is why I guess I'm always, you know, looking out for English language writings in out of maybe the UK and the US where yeah there will be something that will be a bit more deeper and insightful and um, in the states are there more are there more bafflers and n plus ones that are doing a good job or is it are they shrinking these titles there's there are other publications like that yes and i think they're they're more appear all the time but a lot of them have short lives so things appear and then disappear after a few issues. But there are other things like that. There's a magazine called The Point. There's a new one called The, um, the Drift. But you know, things, things come and go. It's, it's hard for these kinds of magazines to establish themselves. The reason that you don't see this you know, so much in the U.S. or other countries in the U.K. too is because of the Internet. People don't want to devote the time and energy to putting out a print publication when they can just do it themselves online. And, you know, during the blog era that, that preceded the, you know, the rise of social media, I guess, you know, people did, did this kind of thing on blogs, but they were mostly done by individual people. They weren't, it wasn't a real magazine that had a staff. In order for writing to be good, you have to, well, you have to have good writers, but you also need editing, copy editing, proofreading. You know, you need a staff of people that are dedicated to doing this. And the internet, you know, kind of washed that all away. 
And, you know, there was a period where it seemed like internet writing would be just as good as, you know, as print. But, you know, social media then came and kind of drove that all away. And at the same time, you know, the rise of corporate consolidation in the publishing industry and the film industry, television, all, all this led to the kind of erasure of individual voices in favor of, uh, you know, commercial concerns dominated by, you know, corporations so that everything is just happy talk and people don't, people don't devote themselves to learning how to be writers. They just end up being publicists. And, you know, Twitter, of course, is, you know, the ultimate example of this in a way. You know, Twitter does get a bad rap and it deservedly so many on many occasions. But, you know, I still hold on to it because it's through Twitter that I find things like your book. And, you know, I follow people I like and I admire. And, and, and yeah, definitely Internet has kind of erased and taken away uh, the kind of writing I, people, you know, that a lot of maybe people like us, you know, you know, we, uh, are interested in because everything yeah is either dumbed down or like you said kind of it's more about publicity versus you know like deep insightful writing um but i'm also now noticing uh, at least maybe this past uh, year like a lot of writers now because not many writing gigs are, have, are available since the pandemic started, obviously. And I think this kind of um, almost pivoting to newsletter and Substack, and I feel like it's becoming even more closed in, uh, and more fragmented in terms of trying to find good writing because it's just no longer available or accessible. Yeah, definitely not in print and online. It's just this, you know, kind of big ocean of, you know, where a lot of it isn't as good as one would hope. So, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this kind of turning into um, everyone now launching their own newsletters? So they're becoming kind of their own individual publishing form of reaching out. Well, to their there's, you know, something like Twitter to me is essentially a vehicle for self-promotion. And if you have a book to promote, you know, it's great if you found out about my book through uh, Twitter or you learned about my other writing that you can read for free online from Twitter. Uh, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of people are turning to a tiny newsletter and Substack and things like this to, you know, as vehicles for their writing. But again, that, that requires a huge amount of, uh, you know, drive to do that. You have to be really dedicated to that. You have to do it every two weeks or week, every week, every month, some kind of schedule and then try to get people to pay for it. I think there's going to be a huge amount of burnout in that. And some people I know started those, you know, around the beginning of the pandemic and then are already aren't doing it anymore. I think it's hard to monetize is that you need a lot of subscribers to do that. Podcasts have been more successful in that area, I think, because it's based on advertising. You know, if you get more than, you know, 10,000 listeners, you know, you can get supported by an advertiser. I don't see that necessarily happening in something like Substack, which is subscription-based. Um, I've been fortunate in that I have vehicles for my writing that pay me uh, because of the Baffler and other magazines that I write for. So that's good, but uh, it's not really sustainable. It's true. And we're going through a time of great you know, disruption. I, ha I hate to use that word, but uh, you know, in, in the publishing industry, so it's harder and harder for writers to find places to publish 
And it's also harder for people to get good at their job of being a writer. So a lot of it becomes very diaristic and, you know, rambling, uh, unedited prose that is not really that interesting. So that, that makes Twitter more interesting because it's pithier, it's shorter, and it's funnier. And, you know, all, all of this together is not good for writers. No. Writers need to make a living, you know. And uh, it's a problem that is only getting worse, I think. And I'm not sure that Substack is going to save people, but maybe some people will emerge from it. But the, the dedication that you have to have to Substack is harder than the dedication you have to have to your craft because all of a sudden you're putting yourself on a schedule. You know, most people are editing it themselves. Uh, um, they have to produce work kind of in a vacuum. So it's very atomized. And um, it's not as good as magazines or online publications, you know. And at the same time, those things are harder to support. So it's it's a we're going through a period of great change, you know. That's uh, really annoying, frankly. Uh, so speaking of great change and annoying, <laughs> the whole streaming <laughs> drama, especially the last couple of weeks and again I, I think about the title of your book and this could have been a title that you could have come up you know this year even though the book was launched in 2018 right so it's been just over yes the years? it came out it came out at the very end of 2018 okay so okay yeah and um I you know the title of my book the earth dies streaming gave it new life when the pandemic started and movie theaters closed so when the pandemic started and theaters closed, a lot of people started to want to talk to me on podcasts and interview me in magazines and uh, stuff like that because they thought that the title of my book was prophetic. But, you know, it's just a pun. It's based on a British horror film from the earlier mid-60s called The Earth Dies Screaming, <laughs> uh, which is a proto-zombie a proto film directed by Terrence Fisher. Um, who was a Hammer Horror director. And, um, you know, there's two songs that have that title, too, that people know. One by UB40 and one by Tom Waits. People understood the title when it came out. But then when theater started to close, it, it got new life, kind of. And now, especially because of the, you know, as theaters have been shuttered, you know, they haven't really, they haven't reopened in New York City since the pandemic started, you know, the, 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 the topic of streaming has become more and more important in the entertainment industry and therefore in the news as, uh, you know, big blockbuster films have failed when they have been released, like Tenet, um, and now with the Warner Brothers uh, HBO Max deal. So, so things that I wrote about in the introduction to the book, which is called Remember Me on This Computer, have become more and more in the forefront of people's discussions on the hit, pardon me, about the history of cinema. <clears throat> so, so the title of the book has served it well. No, I mean, and, and good for you, you know, like, yeah, like if that's, you know, it's kind of created more interest and, and people are reaching out because of it, that, that's great. But the whole like discussion about cinema closure and again, uh, because cinemas opened here, so they were only closed for 12 weeks, and then they opened, and starting with just re-releasing titles from early, you know, from January, February, and then new releases have been 
coming to our cinemas and not just kind of the American ones. And, you know, we've had a few kind of non-American films. Like we've had a couple of Canadian films, so that was interesting. <laughs> and uh, a few Arabic titles, obviously, uh, slow from India because not many, a lot of, I think, big Bollywood films have been postponed or maybe they've gone on streaming as well. I haven't been following kind of the streaming news out of India. But the way cinema is being written about in mainstream media just makes it sound like as if cinema is like dead everywhere. And that, that kind of annoys me because I think, and it's always right, I, you know, just the way, and it's like with the movie industry as well, right? So it's as if it's just American films and Hollywood and nothing else exists, especially people who aren't inquisitive or curious or aware of anything that happens outside kind of, you know, American culture that's exported to the world. So despite kind of this uh, whole cinema closure, like every time I read it, it just, anyone who doesn't know better thinks, oh my God, cinemas everywhere are closed and they'll never come back. And so it's also been frustrating reading the way the, the articles are written. And I know they're all American publications for an American audience, but I always wonder how many of these American editors and writers are also aware how much their writing really reaches out and has, you know, I, um, like a lot of people outside the States read it. So I don't know what well, you on that. Well, you know, they, the, uh, editors don't care about that at all. So that's not something that interests them in the least. Uh, there are a lot of places in the U.S. where cinemas have been open too. You know, if you live in the middle of uh, Iowa, you're, you, the movie theater closed for a while, but it's, it's reopened now. But that doesn't matter because the box office is determined by three or four or five urban locations in the U.S. If the movie theaters in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, and, you know, Houston are closed, then that's, that's, that's most of the box office okay. for, for a movie. And movie, movie, the movie industry is dependent on opening weekends. So if these places are closed in those cities, it, it, the rest of the country doesn't matter to them. Okay. If 50% or more of their box office is in, you know, four or five or six urban locations, you know, the, the, the hinterlands don't, don't matter. Um, and there are a lot of people in the U.S. who are very interested in foreign films. You know, lots of people watch them, not just, not just people who have moved here from other countries. There's, you know, the, the, the festival audience and the art film audience is, is substantial here. But it's not substantial enough that it would, you know, reach the interest of arts editors at big publications. Those kinds of publications don't want to write about the kinds of films that it show on Mubi, or, or even on the Criterion Collection channel. Mm. You know, that's that's not of interest to them at all. All they care about is technology and box office. So the art of cinema is really really not of much interest to arts editors at major publications. They want to talk about what's going to happen to the industry. They don't want to talk about, you know, mise-en-scene. They don't want to talk about film directors unless they're very, very, very famous and everyone knows who they are, like Christopher Nolan. Um, and that's just how it is here. And that's, you know, that's bad because the, the idea of arts coverage became completely folded up in entertainment. And entertainment means, essentially, in the U.S., television, pop music, and gossip. Mm. It does not mean the cinema at all, you know? Uh, people are very lazy, and they like to stay home and watch television. And, uh, you know, many places around the country, 
the movie theaters closed already. They were multiplexes that were built in you know places people had to drive to, and they're going the way of malls in those places. You know, e-commerce has destroyed the mall. In many parts of the country, there are closed malls, which are referred to as dead malls, that are just empty of stores, and you know, no one goes to them anymore. And they're ones that are completely closed and abandoned, too. Those are dead malls. That's what's happening to cineplexes, too, in many places. So you can go to a part of the country where, in a small town, maybe used to have one or two movie theaters. You know, starting in the, in the 80s, they built cineplexes, on the, on the outskirts of town, well, now no one goes to those places anymore because either they're closed or the film industry priced out the audience. People who live in the poorer parts of the country don't want to pay between 10 and $16 to see a movie when they can just sit at home and pay that amount uh, once a month and see an unlimited amount of movies instead of just one. So as happened in the music industry with CDs, that's what happened to the film industry. They priced themselves beyond the place that the audience could afford, which leads to piracy. And, uh, you know, it leads to people not paying for the product anymore. And then, then the, these industries find ways to blame the audience for their own, uh, you know, predatory practices. Of course, if you're charging, if a record album used to cost $8, then you're charging $16 for a U2 CD people are going to pirate that or they're not going to buy it. That's what happened with movies too. They started, you know, the movies, the blockbuster form started to dissolve into nonsense and they started charging more and more money for it. People did not want to pay that at the box office. So they started adding 3D and IMAX and making super productions with like the Avengers that have many, many stars in them uh, that are just bombastic, empty spectacle. And this was a cycle of, uh, you know, it, it, it was a de-evolution of cinema, you know, and it was a cycle that they couldn't really get out of that they think streaming is going to solve by, uh, you know, reiterating these same things, uh, breaking them up into smaller chunks so that one franchise can now have, you know, 15 different television series based on it. I think this is a you know bad development for the cinema. I don't think it's sustainable at all. Yeah, because I'm like, how many pre prequels and sequels, and then you know uh, offshoots of this character and that character? Like the whole thing is just overcooked, right? <laughs> There's just no creative, no new creative work being done, at least from these big studios. But I mean, yes, and and further, furthermore, in, in terms of that, you know, th they bet on something that they think they know, but they they never look at the current marketplace when they're doing this. So what's the most popular streaming sh series now? It's The Queen's Gambit. It's an original show. It's not based on any pre-existing IP, you know, intellectual property. Uh, it stars, a, you know, just stars one actress. It's not a blockbuster. It's not action adventure. It's a movie about a woman. It's a series, pardon me, about a woman playing chess. That is the biggest thing that's in streaming right now. And so the answer... You know, so Disney's answer to that, or Warner Brothers' answer to that, is just to do more and more things that are the opposite of that because they were successful in the past. You know, they're not, they don't they don't have the right analysis. Yeah, no, of what people want. Yeah, that's true. So here in my part of the world, like the whole cinema, it kind of thrives on creating. Like it's all about the experience and 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 
this kind of like people are coming because it's it's what they're going to eat and what kind of seats they're going to sit. Like talk, the actual cinema, the actual movie is the last thing that gets talked about. Like, so I've been, you know, to conferences and symposiums or I've heard, you know, people running cinemas talking in public and it's never about the movie. So it becomes about, no, we're offering them a service and the food and, 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 and now I think, they're, and they're counting on that as their money-making uh, in addition to whatever box office uh, numbers. And mall culture is huge over here, right? So that it's kind of like almost uh, the equivalent of public spaces, you know, in other parts of the world, especially because it's very hot, like most of like, you know, eight months of the year, like it's extremely hot to be outdoors, right? So malls are very popular and in the malls are all the multiplexes. And and with all these articles about cinemas are dead and they're closed and they won't come back, like they, they here they carried on and all of, and pretty much all of them are kind of part of bigger conglomerates and but they they seem they don't at least publicly they don't say they're struggling and not that that's a topic that would ever be said publicly because you know over here no one likes to talk about you know anything negative publicly i mean and they are bringing the movies i mean definitely the box office numbers are are down compared to previous years but the uae was never i think a big contributor to box office results right like we're definitely not anywhere like near china as an example but saudi right. arabia for example is is a potential because so when saudi arabia opened their cinemas last year it was like all attention was on Saudi Arabia. So any conversations about movies in, in you know, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia comes up and that kind of, you know, monopolizes the conversation. So when they closed, it was like a complete shift because it was a very optimistic year for them, 2019. So even now, I think with the, and they've reopened recently, obviously the cinemas, but attention seems to be relying on bigger numbers there, which is why some of the chains out of Dubai are opened over there because they're expecting, you know, because the population... Uh, is definitely much bigger than the UAE. The whole cinema experience as a luxurious experience and, and it's becoming more and more expensive, but there is an audience that pays for that. The ones who don't want to pay are more than happy to stay home, like you said, like that's the majority in general, and, and piracy. And, I, I, and you mentioned, you, you brought up the word piracy, and I was thinking of piracy because I think piracy has been rampant like as long as I remember over here. I mean, my introduction to movies has been through pirated VHS. Like that's how I was you know getting into cinema was like renting pirated versions of uh, all the movies out of Hollywood from the local video store on VHS and it was only um I think it was only probably like in the 90s late 90s or early 2000s where there was trying to be strict policy on on piracy and I mean the joke also evolved like after the pirated VHS in the late 90s early 2000s like we had it was literally there was this thing called the Chinese DVD lady. So some this, and uh -huh. this Chinese woman who would go around these apartments with stacks of kind of pirated movies, you know, on, on uh, DVD. So this is after VHS uh, ended, right? So, so piracy has been rampant and, and people are very open about it. You know, they torrent this movie, they torrent that movie. And, um, and yet the cinemas are still existing. So I don't know, like, I'm, I, it's, it's just a weird to think how the two exist in the same space, at least where I am, you know? So, yes. yeah, so it's, it's a weird, and there's no shame about people saying, yeah, I'm going to download it. Like there's no about waiting for it to come in cinemas or waiting to, uh, it, you know, if they want to buy the Blu-ray, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, yeah, yes. but, but then there was this piracy article that I shared with you yesterday for on the wired, which kind of was written in a way where it's saying it's going to benefit studios. And I still kind get my head around that <laughs> well because studios 
when you when you talk about the kind of cinemas in uh, the UAE that are more experiential, you know, they're about the food and the social gathering and the luxury of the surrounding and so on. That that's an attempt to defeat piracy because what studios want to sell now is experience, and that the woman from Berkeley who wrote that article in Wired that you're referring to was talking about that. So studios are betting on experience. That's why they have theme parks. That's why Universal Studios has to have a theme park. And, you know, this that, that has nothing to do with uh, the current cinema. It has to do with repurposing pre-existing intellectual property content. Um, so that's their way to defeat piracy. The films become an advertisement for the experiences. You know, there was a period in the U.S. where there was a lot of people selling pirated DVDs. You know, you would get on the subway in New York and a guy would be walking up and down the aisle of the subway with a duffel bag filled with pirated <laughs> DVDs that he would be selling for, you know, $5 each or 10 for $8. You know, cr crazy different prices that were very cheap. And certainly no one here feels bad about torrenting movies either uh, if they want to see a new Hollywood blockbuster. So... You know, and, and movie theaters like Alamo Drafthouse, which is a chain here, also had the, you know, they serve food and drinks while you're watching a movie, whatever kind of movie it was. You know, I, there's a piece in my book about Alamo Drafthouse showing the Baywatch movie, but also showing Stalker, too. <laughs> so you could sit in front of these two movies that are so different from each other, but have the same, uh, you know, fancy milkshake cocktail while you're watching them. Of course, that they're closed now. So the pandemic is changing everything. Uh, this idea that people want to gather for these experiences is totally out the window now. If there's a deadly virus that you can get by going to those places and eating, you know, chewing and laughing and screaming and shouting and doing the things that people do. There is this idea amongst uh, theater chains that people don't really... People just sit there with their mouths closed while they're watching movies. That's not true at all. And the, the movie from the 90s, Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman is a movie about a plague that starts in a movie theater, essentially, because someone is laughing. <laughs> and there's a shot of, you know, the, the spittle coming out of his mouth and flying across the entire theater. Yeah. You know, the Hollywood film industry completely forgot they had already made a film about this. Um, so the pandemic is going to change all these ways of understanding movies. And I think once there is a vaccine that's effective that most people have got, um, people will want to go back to the movies. Uh, but that's not going to change the corporate power grab that's happened by the big studios, you know, uh, which includes Netflix now and Amazon. Um, those places are very deeply invested in getting people to pay for their product by subscription. And they only need movie theaters so that their films can be nominated for Oscars. So, you know, Netflix, uh, I wrote about not, you know, last year, at the end of last year, after my book came out, uh, was showing, you know, was releasing their films to theaters. And they, they had rented a theater in New York to show Marriage Story. And then the pandemic came and, it, you know, those plans were all squashed. So, you know, what's going to happen is that, you know, they're squeezing out independent cinema. And there's, you know, in, through through 2019, lots and lots of new independent movie theaters were opening up in New York City. Those have all been closed. So it's unclear what's going to happen when they're able to reopen, if they're even still there, because they've had to pay rent while they're closed. Final. You know, so it's a, it's a very uncertain time. But what's not uncertain is that 
places like Disney and Warner Brothers, which owns HBO Max, Netflix, Amazon, they want you to stay at home and watch movies. So that's not really the cinema. The cinema depends on large-scale projection in a dark theater with strangers sitting near you. There's this, there's this effort by producers. There was an article in the Times in which um, one of Steven Soderbergh's producers talks about how he uses the word sadly to me. It was interesting. Sadly, there are some people who do not understand that, you, that cinema can exist on your phone or you know, wh- however you want to watch it in some isolated environment by yourself or just with your family or you know, somebody, you know, your, your significant other. You know, that, that, no matter what they say in Hollywood, that is not cinema. If you are sitting at home watching a movie, it's completely different. You've got the lights on. You can be interrupted. People can text you, call you. You can get up to get food. Um, you can putter around. It can take you two days to watch a two-hour movie. It's not the same thing. The main, the main thing about cinema is that it takes place over a certain amount of time, and you don't control that time. You know, the, the time is controlled by the filmmakers and then by the movie theater, by the projectionist, and it's not up to you. Yeah, Somehow I mean, this is supposed to seem empowering to people that they can turn off a movie and watch it over three days or whatever, like a television series. That's television. That's not, that's not the cinema. They're two different things. And the film industry does not want to acknowledge that now because they think that their future is in television, not in cinema. Which, which is frustrating because like the, this art form that we love but doesn't love us back, right? Because it's just, you know, they're happy to convince people that yeah staying home is is the way and like you said you know the whole experience like to me the cinema is yeah I want to sit in a dark room with a good project you know a good screen projected and and yeah I'm also in this pursuit of trying to watch movies on 35 mil 70 mil you know so that's why I've been you know I travel because that's isn't I have no access to that here even though obviously you know films were shown on 35 mil when that was kind of like the standard way of screening films but and 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 it's not even like you know the experience with other people I'm more than happy to be alone in the cinema like the less oh yeah me too like I don't care about the communal like I want to sit there and just don't want to be distracted and the one who wants to be on their phone fine you know don't ruin the experience for us and make studios think you're the only audience for cinemas right so this is that's why I said you know the studios and the, and the film industry doesn't love back the people who really love the art form of, of cinema I mean even at home like fine I got a projector and I have a big wall and I turn off the lights but it's yeah it's definitely not the same like it's like this is no. not the way you know I really wish I'm not sitting on this sofa watching <laughs> this, this movie well the, so. the, the film industry the film industry doesn't care about any individual member of the audience at all they you know they just care about making as much money as possible they have you know, that's, that's, they're hyper-capitalist entities. That's all they care about is, is grabbing market share. Which is why then, I mean, like, so if this whole example, for example, like Warner Brothers saying call all 17 new titles for next year will go straight to streaming and also get a same, uh, you know, like same day release in cinemas in the States, but definitely in non in markets without HBM or uh, HBO Max, which is a lot. Now, I don't know how things will change in terms of other markets having that service, like they will get it in cinema. So I, I do you, like, are you saying studios are relying on big box office numbers from countries outside the States? Like, so the markets like China, for example, 
Well, the, you know, the, the, the reliance on the Chinese market to me is overstated. Okay. Uh, and I think the Chinese are getting tired of a bad American blockbusters. <laughs> the, the, the domestic market share in China is increasing as the Chinese film industry um, has ramped up and been able to compete with Hollywood. But the, the, like I said, their whole model is the opening weekend. That is their only business model. They've never innovated another business model besides mm. that one since the late 70s, mm. since the rise of the blockbuster. So, you know, their thinking is still based around that opening weekend, which determines the entire ancillary market for films, whether it's foreign releases or DVD or streaming. So the pandemic changed that because they could not have an opening weekend anymore. And like I said, they, they, they say in Warner's deal that, yeah, they're going to open things on HBO Max and in theaters. But the other theaters, like I said earlier, don't matter okay. because the theaters that matter are the ones that are closed right now. So that's why they're doing that. They don't want to have all this product lying around. They don't know how long the theaters are going to be closed. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it may be that they jump the gun because people will get vaccinated and theaters can reopen. But this is, they, they've set this in motion now. They've mm -hmm. set this in motion now. And nothing, nothing can stop that. Christopher Nolan cannot stop that by whining like Donald Trump in the paper every day. <laughs> and neither can Danny Villeneuve stop it. Um, there's this trend amongst uh, people, very, very wealthy people in the U.S. who are filmmakers uh, to act like Donald Trump and pretend that the election didn't already happen. You know, it already happened. They already made that decision. No one's going to reverse that decision. No one's going to convince Warner Brothers to go back on that. No matter, no matter what kind of deal they have, no matter how much they get paid, no matter how much money they have. Christopher Nolan cannot do that. So this, this has changed everything. And, you know, obviously the big studios, these giant conglomerates that own so many things, besides movies, are banking on the technology of streaming, which, by the way, is very, very bad for the environment. It doesn't get discussed enough. That's true. Like, you know, it, it's still not part of a, a mainstream discussion about kind of, yeah, digital technology and streaming and its impact on, uh, on the environment. I don't know if it's going to take another, you know, five years, six years for people to go, oh, it's, you know, digital technology and climate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the amount of energy it takes to stream uh, all these movies to people all over the world is massive. Mm. And the amount of natural resources that's using up is massive. Yeah. And then the amount, of, the amount of storage all these things take up when their lives are over as first-run films yeah. is also massive. Yeah. Having a movie theater is just electricity, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they, would, they would ship a print that they made in the lab, and they would show it. You know, and the, the main thing was the electric bill. Yeah. It wasn't that big a deal. It's nothing, it's nothing on the scale of this at all. Yeah, I know. I, I just keep hoping it, it's all going to self-combust and explode soon. So, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll clap when that happens. Whoever is trying to position themselves that they know and they predict, like no one knows, right? And we, st I mean, I think 2021 will still be a bumpy year in general, at least maybe for most part of the year. I think things might slightly go back to 
the norms we might be familiar with maybe once vaccine is more spread out, right? Like more people have it. Yeah. But other than that, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a waiting game. And, uh, uh, but, and it's a shame, just like you said, these decisions by the studios were made where there's no turning back and it's just interrupting and making maybe other studios also react, in, you know, instead of kind of waiting. No one wants to, yes. no one wants to appreciate patience and waiting. Everything's about, we need to no. make a decision. We need to make money and, you know, just, Right. Well, they have they have shareholders who demand that, <laughs> so they have to do that. But you know, when the pandemic started, when the pandemic started and movie theaters closed, you know, to me that's like a terrible thing, because I I've spent my entire life in movie theaters. Yes, it, it's, you know? it's a lifestyle. And so I, people you know, go to the gym every day. Movie. You know, yeah, you go. We, you know, yeah. people like us go to the cinema every day. Exactly, and you know. And and when this started, of course, many people were reading about the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. And if you read about that, you you see that it lasted for almost three years. Yes. So when this started, I said to myself, this is going to last as long as that did. People are not different today than they were then. Um, the only difference is they have the Internet so they can be louder, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, I just prepared myself for this is going to be, you know, almost three years of this, you know, it's going to, you know, the Spanish flu was all, you know, all of 1918, all of 1919, and then a few months into 1920. So I figured this would be the same thing, but people didn't want to look at it that way. So it led to a lot of panic decisions by theater exhibitors, you know, the, the exhibition industry and by the studios, they can't prepare for something like this even though it seemed obvious that it was going to last for a long time. And again, I've, I, wrote, I wrote this, uh, but it just seemed so ironic to me that there was a whole movie about how this started in movie theaters that they didn't pay attention to. And then, there was that, then there was the Soderbergh film, Contagion, exactly. which is more recent, which became the number one film on Netflix for a while when the pandemic started. But they didn't learn anything from that either. And it's because all movie content in Hollywood is just fantasy. There's no difference for studio executives in their content. A Harry Potter movie and Contagion are the same. Same, yeah. They have, yeah, the, yeah. Same, they have the same relation to reality. Oh, it's it's uh, it's depressing. Uh, but I mean, also thinking of the past and its relevance to the present. Uh, your chapter about the Grapes of Wrath which is a movie I had not seen till only very recently. And I watched it online, unfortunately, because it was part of the uh, 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 online program for Il Cinema Ritrovato. Uh, and I mean, it's a festival I've, I've been going to the past kind of three years or so. And obviously the plan was to go to it this year and it, and I didn't even though like, because I think it was still not, I think open for outside Europeans to go to Italy. So it was only mostly Europeans that were able to travel because they still had a physical, uh, a version of the festival and they follow yes. guidelines etc but it was still not possible for anyone outside Europe to go to Italy but they also tried the you know they launched some of the they streamed some of the films online and uh, because this year there was going to be a, a focus on uh, Henry Fonda I right. watched some of the films and Grapes of Wrath was one of them which like I said I had never seen before and I watched it and it was one of my you know favorite kind of film discoveries this year and then reading your piece about it was uh, you know what kind of like I was because there was a lot that I'm like wow this just again it feels so relevant and 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 that's why good movies are good movies because they are relevant at all times it doesn't matter when they were made right and, and yes I, they, they are they are news that stays news 
Yes, like exactly. Like someone said about literature. Yeah, no, and 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 with this, you know, you know, kind of like the economy and you know, climate change impact, uh, migrant labor, police, you know, all of it was in that movie. And then in your book, you say um, that uh, like America would have been a different country if this book, instead of I'm paraphrasing, obviously now, if if this novel was read by eighth graders instead of of mice and men. And and that really stayed with me. Like, yeah, this is the kind of book, this is the kind of story, this is the kind of movie more people should see. And I don't think it kind of, I don't think this film gets mentioned enough when they talk about classics or the canon, or or maybe I'm not aware of those conversations. If they, well, if they the yes, in, in there's a piece in my book about the grapes of wrath, and the piece mm. is called Alien Land. And I wrote that piece, I think, around 2009. Mm. And in, in that piece, I said that Grapes of Wrath is, is like a science fiction movie mm. because it's about the future. Even though it seems like it's just a film about the Depression in the 30s and Okies and Americana. It's actually a film that's telling us about the future. And that came to pass. You know, that was true also. And um, it's definitely a highly relevant film now. It's funny you mentioned The Grapes of Wrath because right now I'm writing a piece about Hillbilly Elegy and Nomadland, which are two films that are kind of in the wake of American understanding about the rural poor that are like The Grapes of Wrath in certain ways, except, you know, not, they don't reach the same heights of, you know, cinema as The Grapes of Wrath by John Ford does from 1940. I've still not watched those two movies. Yeah, Nomadland is a serious film with Frances McDormand, directed by Chloe Zhao. Yeah, the Ron, I, Howard, the Ron Howard film is not a serious. No, film. yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I've not heard anything good about the Ron Howard one, but Nomadland obviously was on my wish list for this year, and the wish seat, and you know, if, like in the festival, and it just obviously hasn't happened, and I don't know, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to see it this year, so yeah. I mean, the the so those films are about rural poverty, and Nomadland addresses this through, um, you know, seasonal work and, and kind of labor migration, like The Grapes of Wrath does. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reason I brought up Of Mice and Men in that piece is because The Grapes of Wrath is a John Steinbeck novel, and so, so is Of Mice and Men. But Of Mice and Men is much better known to school children in the U.S. I think because it's shorter also. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take as long to read. But... Um, yeah, the world of the Grapes of Wrath is the world that we live in now. But people don't want to, you know, obviously Hollywood studios do not want, want to address that. Although Nomadland is a Fox film. Mm. So when it was made, it wasn't part of Disney. Okay. But yeah. now, it's part, now it's part of Disney, you know. And the director of Nomadland is now directing a Disney superhero movie. Yes. Which evidently she, she was shooting kind of simultaneously with Nomadland. So it will be interesting when her movie, The Eternals, comes out to hear her discuss the differences in making these two things, which both end up being products of Disney. And Nomadland, Nomadland had a week-long release on virtual cinemas in December, but it's supposed to come out on screens in February, but I don't think it will be able to. I mean, right. it has, it has a distributor here, so I'm hoping it comes out and maybe they're kind of betting on the whole... Um, Oscar buzz around it, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, my guess is that's when they're going to release it closer to those dates. Uh, just 
because you know people will be more aware of it. Because yeah, I think if if Nomadland is in cinemas now, no one knows Chloe Zhao. You know they know Frances McDor- uh, McDormand from. Well, I- you know, right, you mean in the, you mean the UA you mean in the UAE, no one knows Fran, uh, Chloe Zhao. But yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and and they won't know her till she makes her, uh, you know, action film. But no one knows her from the writer, obviously. You know, like so those movies were never released here. And like I said, Nomadland on its own, if there was no Oscar or award buzz around it, it'll probably not have attention. But it definitely has a distributor. You know, it's funny you mentioned Rich Rovato. I, I don't think that anyone should have had film festivals this year with actual attendees. I think that was a big mistake. And, you know, the world is suffering now because in the summer people had to have their festivals and people had to travel and had to go places. People can't just sit at home and do nothing. And it's tragic. I mean, almost 300,000 people have died in the U.S. now. Not that most of those people were going to Cinema Ritrovato in Italy, but, you know, in Europe the same thing is happening. And, um... You know, I understand people's desire to go to those things, and uh, the idea that virtual festivals are fun to attend is not really true. I mean, it's terrible to just be sitting at home watching a movie on your laptop when you could be seeing it on a 40-foot screen outdoors in Italy. But, um, you know, it was a mistake. You know, the reason that the the pandemic is more of a, you know, it affects everyone in the world but there was a story in the news today about how it's impacted poorer countries much less than first world countries. And that's because this is a first world disease. You know, it's, it's based on people traveling and moving around. You know, it's migratory, um, like work too, you know, so it, it affects the poor in first world countries more than it does the rich. And, you know, people's inability just to sit at home and watch the streaming things that they're subscribing to is, is very limited. That's what we've learned from this. People have to go out and do things, whether it's going to a film festival or, or whatever things that they like to do, that where, where people gather in large groups, music festivals too. And you know, th- this is a learning moment, uh, I think, for the streaming giants. People can't just stay at home and watch these things, no matter how many subscribers. I mean, really, in the end, they don't care if people watch it. They only care if you subscribe to it. Yeah, that's right, because they're not if paying for it. Yeah, it's, it's numbers of, uh, yeah, the subscription base uh, and the yeah. amount from it. But, I mean, I guess, like, with Ritrovato, it happened because I think the city wanted to, you know, because Italy had it really bad at the beginning, right? And I think it's just a way of trying to do something to maybe make, you know, the city feel a bit better about itself, try to kind of show that there's a way of trying to do this but, and still following safety standards. And, right. and, and I, you know, and I believe, and based on, you know, because I have a few friends who did go and, and you know, they were, a, they were happy to be there. And they said, look, you know, like, I mean, obviously you have to wear the mask, et cetera, but, but there, no one said anything bad about the experience who went there, right? So, so I feel there's an element of also trying to show, fine, if we're going to have to have this for three years, we need to find a way to live with it. So, and, and which is why I understand maybe why certain festivals are still trying to have physical festivals. Right. But, but, now, but now Italy is in lockdown again. That, yeah, that's true. And quite a few other European uh, countries again. So, yeah, I, and I don't know now if there's kind of hindsight or connecting or, you know, if that festival never happened, would Italy be in a better position now? You know, so I don't know how... Right, well, it's not, it's not an individual festival. It's the whole way of thinking about how to conduct things yeah. under, under the brutal 
ferocious regime of a deadly virus. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and one that a lot of people don't want to even acknowledge is real. Yeah. You know, so if you if you continue to hold things, it will reinforce the idea amongst a lot of people that it's not a problem. And then a few months later, your whole country will have to be in lockdown again or your whole city or, you know, whoever is in charge of making these decisions at whatever level. Yeah. And this is what happened in New York. There were, you know, in in April and May, you know, 800 or March and April, I mean, uh, up to 800 people a day were dying just in New York. Yeah. And then, then, then it got down to zero in June. And now it's, you know, now again, 90, 90 to 100 people are dying. And that's not even that many compared to other parts of the United States. I mean, percentage wise, you know. So yeah. it's great to have festivals. There's something, there was always something to me suspect about festivals because they are not open to the average person. They're not open to the average person. The, the, real, the, real, uh, the real goal, I think, of cinema should be that films are available to people to see on screens where they live. Just like, you know, in the standard way that movie theaters existed in every town and you could walk to them. That, that, that really should be the goal. The goal, is, the goal should not be that I have to go to Toronto every year to see some movies or to Utah. I have no interest in going to Utah or Toronto uh, uh, under any circumstances, really. You know. Yeah, yeah, but no, but but it does. Like, I mean, it obviously works in some cities for its its people, right? So at least from my experience, yes. you know, Berlin, like, is very popular with you know. So it's not just uh, uh, industry or people who've flown in for right. it. Like, I definitely see a lot. And same with Retrovata, right? It's definitely a very popular, you know, an important. Yes. Uh, for well, but, but yeah, not you're, you're right. Has that version of a festival. The New York Film Festival is very popular in New York City, and they show a lot of great films, and the people that program it do a good job, you know, in general, making that happen. But it's not open to the average person. Okay, yeah. It's very expensive to go to the New York Film Festival if you're you're just a film goer. The tickets are costly, and they sell out quickly, and, you know, the films show once or twice. You know, it's not not something for the average person. It's It's for an upscale, wealthy audience yeah and there's definitely i mean yeah i've experienced that kind of version of a festival with london but i go as industry so i have access to everything but i know for the average londoner yeah the tickets are extremely expensive and it's not for everyone so yeah no it's a shame this idea of festivals for the local community should be a priority i mean our own festival like got shut down you know after running for 14 years and in hindsight and you know I wish it did more and it worked better in terms of yeah, engaging because no one no one really it's very few that miss it because again it was just another the way it was treated it was a it was again the glamour the focus was always about the red carpet and yeah. flown in you know and it was so so in a way like fine maybe it it kind of it was its own worst enemy and it it it, it couldn't sustain itself, right? Um, and yeah, it's just unfortunate that I think really good examples of festivals that are accessible and open and not kind of uh, have an elitist, you know, agenda to it is not the norm in more places than they should be. Right, I mean, I think that the entire concept is elitist, regardless of how you run it, you know? And I'm not saying there shouldn't be film festivals, by the way. I'm saying let's be honest about what, what's, what they are, you know? And then replacing them with virtual theaters is also not something that's open to most people. Yeah. You know, large, large percentages of the population in the U.S. and around the world do not have the ability to watch a movie 
on their computer. No, that's true. And, and furthermore, showing them only on things that are, you know, web-based is, you know, I mean, you should be trying to watch these on the largest screen possible. This is why a lot of people like you uh, did invested in projection, you know, home projection equipment. You know, a lot of that is going on. I mean, I, I have a flat screen TV that's, you know, good size, but I don't, you know, and I have an apartment that's not that small either, but there's not a big enough throw for projection in my apartment that would be, look good. You know, I used to be a movie theater projectionist for many years. And, um, you know, it just is not the same thing at all. There's, there's no comparison. Watching a video projection in your apartment with, you know, your shades down, it's not the same thing as being in a movie theater at all. You know, you know we live in a period where people are trying to pretend that it's the same. You know, it's, somehow it's the same. It's not the same. And, um, you know, I wish people would stop pretending that. But, you know, mostly because of media, as you were saying earlier, people are interested in the technology and what the technology is going to mean for the economy. They're not interested in the art form. No, no, that's, yeah. They just want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. That, they that, just want to report on that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. No, it's, it's, uh, it's really, really, really frustrating. Talking about the art form in the intro chapter, you say there are two filmmakers who have come to the fore in recent years in ways I did not expect. Both are gone, but the stark confrontational truculence of each makes them of the moment to me, or at least of a moment I sense existing simultaneously behind the present. Can we talk about this? So the filmmakers that I, that I decided I wanted to highlight in that brief section of that piece were Stanley Kubrick and Chantal Ackerman. And there's a, there, there are pieces in the book about each of them, too. There's a long piece on 2001, A Space Odyssey, and a book about it. And there's a long piece on Chantal Ackerman that I wrote the day after she committed suicide. Which was uh, really touching. Like, it was, it was really lovely to read. And uh, so I was glad that was something that you shared, you know, because it felt, like, really personal. And, and yeah. it was part of this, uh, this book. And, yeah, no, tell me more. Well, the Ackerman piece was personal because, in fact, I had met her and I, you know, I introduced, uh, I had done a talk with her in Boston, Massachusetts, and then I had had dinner with her and I wrote about that. The Kubrick piece, of course, I never met Kubrick. Um, but those two filmmakers struck me as people who had really thought a lot about the cinema and what it is and how it should be viewed and perceived and experienced and who were very uncompromising in their work, you know, who didn't make concessions to the industry that they were part of. I mean, Kubrick was firmly lodged in the film industry, even though he was living in London, making his films in England. Chantal Ackerman was kind of marginal and marginalized by the industry. But they still managed to do the things that they wanted to do and do it without making things into just entertainment you know, and they did it from opposite ends, you know. Kubrick's films are still dependent on stars and big budgets. Ackerman's films were not dependent on those things at all, although some of her films have stars in them. So just, they just seem like, it just seemed like those were good people to think about in the current context where their values are so different from the values of this, the streaming industry which is, is based on the most, you know, low end kind of idea of what the 
cinema can do. It's based on the values of entertainment, which are values that people don't really examine or interrogate, which is something that I try to do in the other pieces in the book. They're about current films, you know, the capsule reviews that you mentioned earlier. Um, if you're a critic, I think that involves a certain level of criticality that a lot of critics today do not, um, do not make use of. You know, they don't really criticize things. And if no, they do, they do, they, they do it on a kind of, they do it on a kind of, you know, pseudo political level, mm. which is, which becomes a form of promotion because the films, especially Hollywood films, put things in them that are supposed to lead to these kind of discussions that promote the films even more. So Kubrick and Ackerman are filmmakers who were completely outside of all of that stuff. You know, and, and it hurt both of them in certain ways, I think. But people still love their films, you know, and watch them all the time, even though they might be considered boring by the standards of today. People are still happy to watch them, even in the pandemic at home. But but my worry is that there will there's no way of new audience to discover them if it's in the world of streaming, and that's where you know programming and festivals or you know like retrospectives and physical spaces matter. And maybe now, I don't know. I know some programmers are curating screenings online, right? But uh, and so kind of this reliance on this data dump of movies and people are going to discover, I don't think that's going to happen. People are just going to watch what they know or rewatch things they've already seen. And, this, right. you know, and you know, movies like by Kubrick or especially Ackerman, right? Like these are movies that are so special and it's not just like, oh, what do I want to watch now during dinner time whilst I'm eating, you know, sitting on my big sofa or whatever and, and watching it, you know? And so that's where I feel like, oh no, less people are going to be aware of these filmmakers if we're going to follow this path that's been um, put uh, together, determined by studios, you know, in terms of... Well, I, I, I actually, I think in, from, from an American perspective, I think people are much more aware of those two filmmakers than they used to be. And the reason they are is because of both Twitter and streaming. So, so this is a paradox. You know, Kubrick is a big topic amongst film Twitter type people. And Chantal Ackerman's films are, are streamed on the Criterion channel, you know, as parts of what they call collections. So you can see, you know, 30 Ackerman films if you want to. You know, it took me like my whole life to see all Chantal Ackerman's films. But now you could see them all in a week. You know, e even though the most famous one is, you know, four or five hours long. So that, that's very different. And to me, that gives rise to the question of what are festivals for then? You know, we know what streaming is for. What are festivals for? Are they to promote the work of film artists like Chantal Ackerman, who, who are not part of that world? Or are they advertisements, just like First Run is an advertisement now? And, you know, I, in Europe, I think this is, th these questions aren't as, as pertinent. You know, film festivals in Europe um, have a whole different mindset. And that, that's the mindset that I, I think they should have here to some extent, too. And they don't. You know, even though a lot of film festivals are called international film festivals, you know, every, every city in the U.S. for yeah. a while <laughs> used to have, you know, there would be like... Uh, you know, the uh, Louisville International Film Festival. 
you know, I'm just making that one up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in which there would be a few films from other countries, you know. I mean, I, I think, I kind of think that the whole festival experience needs to be rethought in the light of streaming films. When you have, when you have streaming channels like Mubi and the Criterion Collection and, you know, Ovid TV, and there's, there's a number of different ones in the, in the U.S., this really changes the meaning of these festivals because, you know, I watched a Portuguese short the other night on movie called um, Barb's Wastelands that, you know, normally I would have had to go to a festival to see that. It was a 25 minute long film mm. that, was, that was quite good. And, um, you know, made by a filmmaker I'd never heard of called, uh, I believe, Marta Mateus. And my pronunciation is probably bad. But, you know, normally to see a film like that, I would have to go to a festival and pay a lot of money to see that. So that's affecting what happens in festivals, too. You know, I saw that as part of a movie subscription. It was essentially free to me. And, um, you know, this changes the meaning of all these things and, and what they're for. And I'm not sure people, you know, during the pandemic, people are going to have to rethink this a lot, which they're doing. I think, I mean, but I'm not a festival programmer. Yeah, uh, I mean, like with Ackerman, like I have big gaps with her film and I watched her Jean Dalman in Rotterdam in January. It's a movie I've been wanting to see for a long time. And sorry, correction, I had seen it on movie, right? So I had seen it a few years ago on movie. But when it was, when I found out it's in the cinema, I'm like, okay, no, I totally need to go and sit and watch it in the cinema. And I was, I was very happy I made that decision. So even though I had seen it before, right? Because it's like, no, this is how I want to experience the movie. Right. And even though now her, her movies are on Criterion Collection and in the UAE, I can access it through VPN. So it's not, it's geo-blocked, obviously, right? And so right. even in theory, I can watch all her films, but I still don't want to do it that way because I'm like, no, I'm waiting. And I don't know, maybe it's just, I need to get over myself about how, thinking I'm still going to be able to see a whole lot of movies and cinemas in the near future. So it's right. also, you know, deciding how I want to approach these. Do I, do I still hold up? Like Eyes Wide Shut is a movie I've never seen and I've been waiting every year thinking I'm going to get to see it. I'm going to get to see it in the cinema and it never happened. And now I, it's on Netflix. So I'm thinking, oh my God, should I on December 25th, <laughs> you know, yes, you Netflix and watch Eyes Wide Shut at home, <laughs> projecting well, you, 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 you should, you should watch it because there's, you know, there's no time like the present. True. And you don't, you don't know when you'll be able to see it. So True. you should watch it, yes. But that's not the optimum way to experience Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. which is, you know, just like Jean Dillemont uh, by Ackerman. So, you know, that's a film that's, you know, I can't remember the exact running time, but let's say it's four hours. Maybe it's three hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's between minutes. three and four hours. Yeah, it's, it's okay. quite long. All right. So that, the whole point of Jean Dillemont is that it's time-based. Exactly. You sit, you sit in front of the film, for that amount of time, there's no intermission. And in the film, essentially the same thing keeps happening over and over and over again until it doesn't, until something changes and then, you know, unexpectedly, and then the film ends, right? That's the whole point of that film, that it's projected in a, in a movie theater and it's durational, it's a durational event. If you're watching it at home, it's no longer a durational event. No. You know, it's something that you can start and stop. You can watch it like a television show. And if you watch Jean Dillman because you're bored by it at home, if you watch it in half an hour chunks, it's, it's no longer Jean Dillman. Mm. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's something else. It's something else. And it's something that isn't the same. And it's something that doesn't mean the same thing. And it's something that doesn't matter as much either. I mean, and that is, that, that's true of Eyes Wide Shut, too, which a lot of people, when it came out, you, you might uh, be aware or you might recall even, uh, you know, most people hated that film when it yes. came out. <laughs> and they thought it was boring and they thought it was pointless. And it was this great thing that people at the time didn't understand. And it, too, depends on this kind of, you know, durational presentation, right, where you're not in control of it. Just like the character in the film, kind of his life spins out of control. And he's not uh, in charge of the events that happen to him over the night that the film takes place or the, you know, the few days that the film takes place. That the audience is in that position, too. But when you watch it at home, that's no longer true. But I still think you should watch it. Yeah, you should definitely watch it. Yeah, but it's like, looking at a pic it's like looking at a picture of a painting in a book. You know, it might be a color plate in a book, and you, know, you can kind of tell what it's like, but it's still this little thing that's not paint. And it's the same like the, when people went Irishman, where people only were able, able to see it in, on uh, Netflix. I, I was lucky that I was able to see it in London because it was in the London Film Festival last year. And I would have, you know, if I had another opportunity, I've seen it again in cinema. I think I would have hopped on a plane to see it because it did right. get released in cinemas here. And I saw it in a movie theater. I saw it under the best circumstances in a, yeah. not yeah. festival, but it played at first run in New York. Yes, it did. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was, I loved it and I didn't, I wasn't bored by it at all, even though it's long. I guess it's longer than Jean Delamont. Is it longer than Jean Delamont? Maybe, uh, maybe it is. I'll look, in, but, um, look it up right now. <laughs> I um, was very surprised when it premiered afterward on Netflix to streaming, and everyone started talking about how it was boring and they couldn't watch it. Yeah, exactly. because you're, exactly. you're, 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 <laughs> you're distracted. You're watching it at home with other people doing things in the house because it was at a holiday when it came out here. Yes, it's exactly. It's not the same thing. And to it's ridiculous. Exactly. And someone said, you know, they watched it in three goes. Yeah, it's, it's almost the same uh, length. It's three hours, 20 minutes, Jean Delman and, uh, and the Irishman's three hours, 19 minutes. So it's pretty much the same. Uh, well, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, but yeah, like, uh, yeah, the whole, you know, so someone said, I couldn't finish it. It's too long. And then someone said, I watched it in three goes. And I'm like, no, the whole, like, the, the beauty of this movie is watching it in, in its entirety because there is time. There's, you know, age involved and, and melancholia. And all of it needs to be experienced in one go and not, not in chunks. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the idea of, the idea of this important aspect of the cinema is perhaps being erased by streaming yeah yeah and so so in the last in the last decade or so films made in hollywood were already aware of this so they can be very long like an avengers film and they can also be not worth watching all at once yeah like you don't really, you don't really get that much more out of sitting in front of one of those films in a theater yeah. than you do yeah. watching it at home, you know, half an hour a night or an hour, or, you know, however you do it. It doesn't really make any difference. In, in, in a way, those films don't exist to be seen. They're just products, mm. you know, that, that are the first point in a line of sales that are made. So that's the opposite of Jean Dillman or, or a Kubrick film or The Irishman, which nonetheless is part of that, you know. Scorsese made something that's more in line with Jean Dillman. Maybe the Irishman is Scorsese's Jean Dillman, right? Yes, yes. Made at the end, made in the late part of his career. Yeah. So he, he found a way because of his special status in the film industry 
to do something like that. But that's not something that's going to be open to most filmmakers. Yeah, no, that, that's and I guess, true. Yeah, and I guess Romo is like that too. Yes, to an extent, yes, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so moving on to another part of your book, uh, the chapter titled Jessica Beale's Hand. I found it exceptional and I haven't seen, I still haven't seen most of the movies mentioned in that chapter. But to uh -huh. me, I feel it's essential reading about war movies. It's essential reading to think about what war movies mean, especially kind of, you know, recent wars. So not World War II, World, you know, Vietnam, etc. And I, I, I kept thinking this needs to be a programmed list of films. So, well, that would be, that would be interesting. I would be, I would be happy if someone did that and wanted me to come speak at it or something. But, you know, most of the, the reason you haven't seen most of those films perhaps is that most of them are terrible. Yeah, probably. they're not very good movies. <laughs> so I'm not sure how much interest that would elicit at this time. Maybe in ten years it will seem different, you know. So to fill people in who are listening, that was a piece that I wrote. I believe it was in 2008. Yes. While the while the Iraq War uh, was still in full swing, yeah. that was that was the pandemic of the time, mm. right? And no one was really paying attention to it. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, cinematically, like they had two World War II films during during World War II. And I decided to, and, and, and the film industry was not responding to the American war in Iraq in any substantial way, although films were coming out. So I, I decided there was a durational aspect to that piece I wrote, because I decided in one summer to watch every single film made about the war in Iraq up to that time. So I watched, you know, 40 films or so kind of one after another, all at once over a fairly short period of time. And then I wrote an article that encompasses all of those films, um, kind of one after another with a long introduction. And I kind of grouped them thematically. And that piece is called Jessica Beale's Hand, because one of the films involves uh, Jessica Beale as someone who is a soldier in Iraq, coming home, missing one hand and trying to resume her career as a gym teacher at a high school somewhere in mid-America. And, you know, I can't remember the name of the film now that I'm talking to you about. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. But I, compared, I was comparing it to the movie The Best Years of Our Lives, which was made during World War II, in which an actor who lost both his hands in the war appears. But he's a man who actually did lose both his hands. He, he has prosthetic hands. Uh, hook hands, which was the technology at the time. And uh, in the case of the movie with Jessica Beale, she just, you know, of course, Jessica Beale had never lost one of her hands. It was just, you know, movie magic. It had no resonance at all. It was just a dumb part that she played in a movie that everyone has forgotten now. Um, I've forgotten it, even though I wrote about it and had to live with it. I can't remember the name now. I wish <laughs> I, wish I could remember it. Uh, I'm going to try to to try to remember it. Um, but the difference between the best years of our lives in that film really showed the difference between what happened in America, what happened in America's thinking about what war is and what cinema is and what, what it's for. You know, this was a disposable film with no real ambitions except to be a sock and make some people feel better about what was going on in Iraq, even though it, it attempted in some ways to criticize the, the war. It did it in a completely toothless way. 
Um, yeah, and, and that's the thing, you know, like you said, toothless way. And that's why I, yeah, I've not watched a lot of these films. I, I kind of avoided at the time watching. I just found them triggering. It, you know, it's a tough, it was very kind of the tension in this part of the world. And, you know, yeah. you know, it, it just, it, it impacts us. So even if we're not, you know, directly affected by the violence, etc. But there's there's still an impact. And and these American movies that get made about the war are are just becomes very uh, frustrating. And it's even more frustrating when they're screened and celebrated here, right? So I find it very ironic, <laughs> you know, like, and they're not being thought of critically, which is why, like I said, this, this chapter, I find it so amazing. And I wish it's something that could be addressed in a mainstream uh, uh, platform, you know, to think about these movies instead of, yeah, just buying blindly tickets and supporting these movies and, you know, ma- you know, these studios making money out of them. It's like, wait, pause. What, what do these movies mean? What do they represent? What, who is it actually critiquing, right? Or criticizing or, or, or what? And I, I don't know. And I keep wondering, like this was, this chapter, this um, long essay was written in 2008. Could there be a sequel? Could you do one now thinking of all the movies from 2008 and now about yeah, well, a lot of a lot of a lot of Iraq War movies did come out after that, and for yeah. a while I tried to still see them all, but then I stopped doing that because it was too it was too depressing. Mm. Uh, I didn't need to see them anymore, you know. <laughs> uh, but that that the film that were the Jessica Biel, she's not she's just she's just one member of the cast. She's not necessarily the star of that film. It's called Home of the Brave. Um, the films are very insulting to people in the Middle East. They're insulting to Arabs. They they do not uh, give uh, you know the other side any kind of credibility as human beings. They substitute people in Morocco for people in Iraq with yeah. no <laughs> the usual. They they pretend that the Arab world is a unified concept in which Iraq equals all the other countries there. And um, the performances, you know, the actors, of course, who are in these roles try to do their best, but the roles are not written in any kind of way that, um, you know, respects them as a people for the most, ca- the most part, you know. Um, and I did write about subsequent films that came out like Zero Dark, Four, mm. Zero Dark Thirty mm. um, and uh, the Hurt Locker and things that weren't part of that piece because they came out after, as I recall, yeah. which just continue this tradition of, uh, you know, demonizing and insulting people in the Middle East in, in the most ridiculous uh, way. You know, it, I mean, it, it, looking back on it now, it's, it's really hard to believe that these films were being made with like Reese Witherspoon and Jake Gyllenhaal uh, that were about the war in Iraq in which the filmmakers were just pretending to be interested in the subject for the most part. Yeah. They weren't interested at all. They, they felt that they had to make some kind of film about this, but you know, their, their, their convictions are so shallow to be almost meaningless. Yeah. You know? And, and how do you compare these kind of movies say, uh, that, uh, to the Vietnam War movies, right? So there's some, you know, like, again, were there toothless movies about the Vietnam War? Were there deeper, well, insightful movies about the Vietnam War that you want to kind of think in comparison? I mean, it, I, I, don't, I don't mean to, I don't, I did not write the piece to valorize previous films. Okay, uh, no, no, other, no. Other, other wars. Hmm. But the difference with Vietnam is that films about Vietnam were made by people who are very, very opposed to the war. Okay. Okay, so, so there's, there's the Emile D'Antonio documentary in the year of the pig, 
which is the kind of the essential Vietnam documentary. Uh, other people might name a different one, but that's the one that I would name. And then the films that were made by new Hollywood directors were, you know, oftentimes either written or directed by people who had fought in Vietnam. Okay. And uh, that's, that's the big difference. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's yeah, a, that's a good point. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, but that kind of makes sense. But yeah, the ones being made now are not necessarily, there's no kind of political stance from the filmmakers themselves, right? So it's just another product. Right. And, 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 I'm not, and you know, a, a film like Apocalypse Now is not made by people who fought in Vietnam, right? No. no. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of political issues around that film. Um, but, you know, that are, that are suspect. But the commitment of, the, of Francis Ford Coppola is not the same as the commitments of the people who made Home of the Brave. Yeah, yeah. No, you know? sure. no, no, so no, no. it's very different. <laughs> but, but in a sense, Apocalypse Now created this template mm. for how to deal with American colonial wars in foreign countries. Mm, okay. And, um, but, you know, there was still... The idea that, because it was made after the war, not during the war. Yes. It was made you know, six years after the war had ended. People still held the memory of confronting the Vietnamese in Vietnam. Mm. And this was not true of the war in Iraq films and the war on terror films. And part of the issue in those films is that the war in Iraq and the war on terror, which are kind of two different things, and the war in Afghanistan, so really three different things, mm. were conflated into one thing in this big kind of fat ball yeah. that America does now um, to the point where none of these three things could be spoken about in the films individually. When a lot of the films about Vietnam were made, they were made right after the war, uh, some of them by people who had experience of fighting in the war. And they were made... They were made in opposition to the war, firmly in opposition to the war. The, the war in Iraq films and the war on terror films were made while this endless war was going on, and they already existed in a world of this kind of endless war. And they were not made in opposition to the war necessarily, even though some of them were opposed to it. They were made as kind of liberal sops to our bad feelings about the war on terror, and therefore they're examples of bad faith. Most of them were not, with the exception of some documentaries, made by anyone that had any kind of combat experience. And, you know, they, they produced this kind of mushy, you know, kind of film that was not very strong or very politically sophisticated. Um, and, you know, it was it was a failure on the part of Hollywood because previously to that, before the war in Iraq, before the war on terror, there were a lot of films about World War II made by directors who had nothing to do with World War II, to whom it was essentially historical. Saving Private Ryan is the great example of this. Uh, Spielberg was not involved in World War II. He had no he's, he had no combat experience. He wasn't in Vietnam. Um, which would have been his war. I, perhaps he was too young. I don't really know what happened there. But, um, you know, the, this, this valorization of the greatest generation led to a kind of downplaying of subsequent generations of soldiers and of American uh, warmongering. And, 
you know, this this ideology was bad for filmmaking and bad for our understanding of uh, the war in Iraq and the war on terror through the cinema. And I mean, and there's a line in that chapter that says an era of endless war chokes off the kind of evaluation that in the past has produced the best war movies. If the war on terror never ends, those films cannot be made. Evaluation will be left to movies like The Dark Knight, which indulge our longing for relief from war at the same time as they replicate its status and reconfigure its atrocities as blockbuster entertainment. <laughs> so, yes. It really, really well. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I say also in that piece, conservatives always say that Hollywood hates America. This is a big right wing uh, idea. It's a, you know, semi fascist talking point that they have. The thing to me that proves that Hollywood hates America is the, how they keep making Batman films. Exactly. <laughs> just, just, as just as America is fighting an endless war, Hollywood keeps making Batman movies yeah. no. over and over again with different actors. Yeah. It, no. Same thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> it, and, it was fun, and, you know, and it was funny to me that the day that um, Disney announced this myriad of titles they're going to put out of Star Wars iterations was the same day this list of 106 representatives came out who were all trying to overturn the presidential election in the Congress. Uh, you know, I, I conflate those two things in my mind, this, this long list of people with this long list of Star Wars movies. One, one list wants to overturn the presidential election. The other just wants to keep making the same movies over and over again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I still can't get my head around the, the list of titles they announced that are all just kind of recycling or a derivative of a derivative of a derivative. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yes. But moving now from long forms, I I'm very curious about the capsule reviews. Um, some of them are just like a sentence long. And I'm just fascinated that A, you write them and you and it and that short kind of writing is allowed to be treated as a review in your kind of selection of reviews when they are published. So like like I think the shortest one is Revolutionary Road, where you say Revolutionary Road shows something people think they want to see but really don't for what happens if Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet survived the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you like that. Thank you. Of Revolutionary Road. <laughs> the the um the the reason I started writing those was because well for for two reasons one was that the capsule form of reviewing which is a consumer guide form of reviewing had totally taken over film criticism by that point okay and I felt that it, I felt that it need to needed to be repurposed or subverted for different purposes than just the promotion of films and giving them grades and and also, I was working full-time when I started writing those pieces for N Plus One, and I had a job that was, you know, a salary position that was about a 60-hour-a-week job, usually. And I didn't have a lot of time to write long essays when I started doing those for N Plus One. So, um, you know, I explained that, too, in the introduction to the book, which I mentioned before that's online, Remember Me on This Computer. Um, the editor of N Plus One at the time asked me to write something, but I couldn't. I couldn't really. I didn't really have the time, so I did it. I did it in a different way. Because I, I unfortunately worked out. 
Yeah, no, I mean, they're hilarious because the way they appear in the book, like, just, like, they're unexpected, you know, so, like, also the kind of the way, it's not like one chapter of capsule reviews only, right? It, it kind of, it, 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 there's an interesting flow where I'm reading a long form and then a medium, and then suddenly I'm reading this one-liner, and that's also a review. Because I was trying to see which one was literally the shortest, and I think Revolutionary Road is, because the other short one I found was No Country for Old Men, where you just say, whenever Javier Bardem took out the pressure hose and put it to someone's head, I kept waiting for his victim to go, ouch, stop it. Why are you doing that? That hurts. Cut it out. And like, I feel like that's kind of dialogue that goes on in my head if I'm watching a movie and I'm like, oh, wait, could that be a form of capsule review? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, think the, I think the No Country for Old Men one was in that first one that I did that I mentioned when I just didn't have enough time because I was working yeah. my other job so much. Mm. Yeah. And the, type, the, the name of each chapter, was that something you were in charge of or, or is that with the editor as well? Well, for the, for the pieces that are, you know, strings of shorter reviews, I picked the titles based on a line of dialogue in one of the films. And for the other pieces in the book, I think I, I chose all the pieces. Well, oftentimes when you write for magazines or other kinds of publications online, the editors pick the titles, the editors write the titles. But I think um, for the book, I either used titles that I had originally given the piece that they also used, or I switched the titles for the book. I, I came up with new titles. So the Grapes of Wrath piece, was not, which was originally published online, was not originally called Alien Land. Um, I, I named it that for the book. And, and, what, and at, towards the end of the book, in your acknowledgments, you, you kind of list the, the, um, the reviews which were not in N plus one, so you list all the different non-N plus one publications. And lo and behold, I found one which, you know, is out of the UAE, the National. So I was like, wait, you've written for the National? <laughs> and, and when I looked it up, look, you, you have three articles with your name on the National's website. But it was also like a long time ago when the National was, it's very different to what the National is today. So, <laughs> so I'm kind yes, of Yes, I started and, and when the National, uh, yeah, when, when the National started in the UAE, there was an editor there who's an American. Jonathan Shannon. Jonathan Shannon. And he's now at The Guardian. Yes. Um, and he asked me to write some pieces. And one of the pieces is in the book. Yes. It's the book. Uh, it's, the it's the piece on the film critic David Thompson, which is in the book under the title um, Oedipus Multiplex or Oedipus Cineplex. I can't remember now. Multiplex. Oedipus yeah. Multiplex. That one I still liked. And then I wrote a piece for the National on the comic strip Garfield. Yes. And the and, and a book called Garfield without Garfield. Yeah. And I and I and I like that piece still, but it didn't really fit in with the book. And then I wrote another piece that I don't like at all that I had to write very quickly and didn't come out well. Any plans on another book in another format or or for now you're just day by day well, my, figuring things out? My book <laughs> my book is also available as an ebook. Yes. So there's, you know, that, that came out in last May because we were going to do a new edition of the book, but okay. it was not really possible because of the pandemic. So we did it as an ebook, And now there's going to be another print edition of the book soon, probably, probably early next year, in January, maybe. And in the meantime, well, not in the meantime, but, you know, I, I've, I've been writing since then. I've written many pieces since then. And, you know, those, I hope, will be collected in another book, too, maybe next year. 
uh, in the middle of next year, perhaps, uh, I'll start putting that together um, as soon as possible, really. And, uh, you know, I've just been writing. I write for The Baffler, um, and uh, I'm the film critic there, and I write for a number of other places, too. I've got something coming out in Harper's. Okay. I've got something coming out in Freeze magazine uh, that I'm working on now. Cool. All right. No, I'm looking forward to these. I know I was imagining, you know, we talked about kind of Substack earlier on and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what if 10 years from now, all these individuals who have started the, you know, their newsletter will consider, you know, publishing all their newsletters into a book? <laughs> Is that like, well, <laughs> I mean, so, you know, I, I if, if I started a Substack, I would, you know, that would be one of my goals of doing it. But it's unclear. It's unclear what the publishing industry is going to be like now that it's consolidating more and more uh, in the U.S. and, you know, everywhere, really. That's true. Uh, you know, there, my book, big publishers, the big four, as they are called now, they don't really publish books of film criticism. Okay. They, they don't publish any books about film that aren't just pop biographies or memoirs. Mm. Or kind of, you know, maybe like picture books about a specific film or filmmaker. Film criticism is not published by big publishers anymore. Um, if if I had tried to publish my book with a big publisher, it would, it would have ended up very differently if anyone had done it at all. So, you know, my book has done pretty well. And it's done better than I or the publisher expected it to do. And I think that's because people do want to read books of film criticism but they want them to be they want them to be you know good they don't want them to just be shallow empty books uh you know they want them to be actual film criticism as it used to be uh published so i i i i think that because i did it with n plus 1 books and i was able to do it the way i wanted and the way they wanted it came out well and it did well because there is an actual desire on the part of readers to read things like. What is your advice for someone who wants to be a film critic? Because I just feel it's it's uh, it's almost like a dead end. Like you know, is that even a, a field to pursue today? You know, versus just kind of writing individual pieces on you know blogs or letterbox or newsletter. Well, you know, you can. There are you know magazines do publish film criticism. They're often written by people who aren't film critics uh, or people who know that much about cinema i mean there there are oftentimes they're issue oriented pieces the film will come out about a certain you know social issue social problem uh something wrong in the world and then the film will be written about by people who are more interested in that than in movies you know my advice it's very very difficult to make a living writing as a film critic um you know for many years i had a job a salary position in a company that did uh, brand analysis for the television industry. And before that, I had other jobs. Um, you know, and I quit that job because I was making more money as a writer and I wanted to do the book. But now, I mean, it's just, I don't, it's it's such a low level of existence in a way financially now. And I, you have to be very dedicated to it. And you have to, you have to, that has to be the only thing you want to do. And you, and in order to live like that, you have to you have to willfully detach yourself from from other things in a way. Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't really recommend that to anyone. 
you know i mean most people that want to be film critics now become academics of some sort you know they become academics of some sort and they teach in universities and even that is kind of going away or or they become entertainment journalists so they're writers they want to be journalists and they, they become entertainment journalists and they cover the entertainment industry and if they do write film criticism it's not it's just consumer guide work for them for the most part you know i i if you if this is something that one wants to do you just your your level of dedication just has to be so high to it that it's really you know i just i just wouldn't recommend it to young people <laughs> i just think it's very hard you know and it's something like letterboxd letterbox is just a social media platform you know it's just another social media platform where they're harvesting information about the users and about their tastes and preferences you know people can write on that they can write something that's interesting i look at it sometimes i'm not part of it i see a lot of you know writing that isn't so good um it's mostly people making lists of things which can be helpful as guides to see movies but then again, we're in the consumer guide world more than in the writing world. So it's kind of bleak right now, you know, and it's getting bleaker as corporations consolidate the film industry. But it's necessary to counter these things as writers and thinkers. Well, the other, the other avenue for people who want to be film critics now that I didn't mention before is becoming the film programmer. With the great explosion of festivals before the pandemic era, uh, a lot of people could become you know, could try to become film programmers and work at festivals as they needed more people. And, you know, there is writing involved in that because festivals produce catalogs and sometimes essays yeah. and they do interviews yeah. with filmmakers and so on. Yeah. But again, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a liminal area between actual writing and publicity. Yeah. And, and so, and so is, you know, I, I've written things for people that put out DVDs like the Criterion Collection, Blu-rays. Mm. And I love doing that. It's great to do that. But again, you're working for someone who is putting out uh, a consumer product where the writing is not the main product at all. Yes. So, you know, it, it's, it's great and it's valuable to have essays that come with um, Blu-rays and DVDs that are in the package and also appear online. But that's not really the same as regular film criticism, again, although it's, it's, it's great to do that. Um, so you have to try to find avenues that are open to, you know, prose writing and criticism, whether it's something like that, a festival, you know, academia, which has different demands. Um, you know, film criticism is not, is not really supported by, by mainstream publications, although many of them have film critics. Yeah. For, uh, in, for... yeah in most, in most cases, those people are people that have had those jobs for years. I mean, like the Wall Street. Street Journal has a film critic who's been there since like 1962 or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, these, you know, it's, it's, there's not a lot of the previous generation before mine has not left a lot of avenues open for subsequent generations. Mm -hmm. That's why things like television recapping started. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, I, I talk about this in the book too. This is why we have television recapping now because there aren't things open for people that want to be critics. Yeah. And, People want to write, and they're interested in in this, these forms of, uh, you know, visual communication and writing about it. And you know, they have to make their own opportunities. Yeah. Uh, that the main thing is you have to make your own opportunities now. You know, if that book hadn't come out, I still would, I still would have been writing my column and writing other pieces. But it 
was only because of the publication of the book that I end up speaking to you, and, you know, doing all this other kind of thing. So, you know, a book that comes out, <clears throat> a book that comes out has meaning that, you know, leads to larger things. And if, if these things never come out, you know, then it's all just like, who's the most popular podcaster that talks about Marvel movies exactly. that has a big Twitter following. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it matters. So even if it's, you know, not the qu quantity that uh, we're fighting against, but yeah, if something's out there, it, it matters. And hopefully, yeah, like it inspires. And like I said, yeah, it reached, you know, I got it here in the UAE and it led to this, this conversation and, and, and hopefully, you know, more conversations about your book with other people and hopefully it inspires, you know, other writers and potential people interested in, yeah. that, you know, that but, but I have of doing something that, you know, can be meaningful and truthful. Yes. I mean, it's my goal to, it's my goal to write about the cinema in a way that is valid for the present, you know, and that that's it to find a new way to do something that's valid for the world that we live in now. But I, you know, as we were talking about writers in the future before, I don't think it's my goal to necessarily inspire people to do, to write, but it, it, I want, I, it's, I want, it's hard to express really, but I want people to consider different kinds of understandings about the cinema and about media than they might've had without reading things that I write. But I'm not trying to be inspirational or, or anything like that, you know? <laughs> I just want inspirational to- accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So of course I'm happy uh, if anyone reads what I write and if they like it and, you know, but I, I didn't start doing it in order to, to, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the right word is to, I guess, to inspire people because a lot of writing that is done that way, a lot of writing that is done that way, I think is bad writing. No. And there's a, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that now that's, you know, because the world is in very bad shape and there's a, there's a great deal of unfairness and injustice in the world. And naturally people want to counter that through writing if they're writers uh, but that's not the same thing as being a critic, yeah. You know, and, and I think that's an important. I think that's an important thing to realize if you're a writer. Good. Well, um, I think that's a good point to wrap up this discussion. I, I'm really very thankful that you were that a you said yes and made time to have this conversation with me. And I hope uh, in the not too distant future, our, our paths cross, whether me, you know, visiting New York or you. I think that would be this great. Part of the world or, you know, Bologna, Cinema Ritorato or any other, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look forward to a day when we can do that. And I'm, I'm glad you had me on. Thank you very much. And thank you for buying my book. My pleasure. Before we end this conversation, please let listeners know where to find your book and where to find you on social media. At the N plus one website at their shop. So just do a search on, you know, N plus one Hamra book and you'll find it easily and you can order it there. It's also available in independent bookstores in the U.S. and around the world. And you can get it on Amazon. Unfortunately, Bookshop does not have it right now. So don't look there. Um... And I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Hamra Rama. And you can find me there. 
Thank you for listening. For more discussions about art and culture, please follow or subscribe to Tea with Culture on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or any other podcast app you may be using. Please leave a rating or a comment. We'd really like to hear from you. You can also follow Tea with Culture on Twitter and Instagram. Till next time.